I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today started two leagues, the National Football League in Europe and the most recent at XFL, a Rhodes Scholar finalist, a graduate of West Virginia, a former football player for the Houston Oilers, and worked at his alma mater as the athletic director and the NCAA as their executive vice president. With his law degree from Texas and a son by the name of Andrew Luck, I guessed Oliver Luck. Thank you. Welcome, friends. Oliver, a pleasure to have you part of joining us today. And always interested, you were a, you know, a, a star quarterback, uh, and then you had a son who was growing up. How long did it change from a going from he was your father until <laughs> how did that dynamic occur when you were his, when they said, oh, is Andrew Luck your son? Uh, it didn't last very long because if you remember back in the 80s when I was playing, I was a backup primarily played behind Warren Moon. Uh, you know, I spent five years with the Oilers. Naturally, I think this probably comes to every guy who's played football, certainly played a, like a, a, you know, a position like quarterback. You know, you start throwing with your kids as they grow up. Andrew was born in, I guess, 1989. So after I had just after I had stopped playing. But, you know, we played a lot of uh, catch in the front yard. You know, he, he spent the first 11 years of his life living over in Europe. So it wasn't all that common for him to be able to find a local German friend or an English friend or whatever, uh, you know, to play catch. So we did a lot of that. Uh, I tried to teach him uh, to throw like Dan Marino. That was my goal, right? You know, that, that release right off the, of the like air. Danny, yeah, Danny was such a great, you know, thrower, great quarterback, had such a nice release. Uh, but it didn't take long, probably when he was in, you know, sophomore, junior year of high school. Uh, he uh, showed a lot more promise than I did. So uh, that's when I became uh, his dad as opposed to him being my son. Right. Interesting. The uh, Your journey, though, I mean, starting in Cleveland, going to West Virginia, successful quarterback, you know, uh, semifinalist for Rhodes Scholar. Talk about your career, you know, in terms of how you got your law degree. How, how do you end up going to Europe? How does that happen? It was uh, you know, fairly interesting. So I, I spent five years with the Oilers in Houston. Uh, I, I think I was pretty realistic or self-aware about my skill set and uh, you know, knew that I, I, I probably wasn't going to end up as a, you know, as a starter or, or you know, with some sort of a Hall of Fame career. So I decided pretty early on, really after my, my first season, that I would need to spend the offseason doing something valuable. And, and that was going to law school. I was was interested in the law. Uh, so long story short, uh, during the five years that I was with the Oilers, I attended uh, law school both at the South Texas College of Law, which is a, a, a private school in Houston, but then also at the University of Texas in Austin at their, at their law school. So graduated with, a, with a, a law degree from the University of Texas. And then I, I spent a year in Europe on a legal fellowship, Jed. And this was uh, with the, the then 
West German government. This is before the wall came down, right? The wall came down in 89. Right. I was over there for a year in, uh, in, in 87 and in 88. And I realized being over there that American football was being played. You know, we don't really think about that very much, or we didn't think about it back at the time. The NFL had very few sort of plans in terms of, you know, extending their marketplace to Europe or, or elsewhere outside the U.S. You know, as you suspect, the U.S. troops, right, the Army folks, and we had plenty of troops based in Germany. They developed sort of a semi-pro league with German kids that were playing football. And I, I, I sent a letter to then Commissioner Pete Rosell. I, of course, met Pete uh, when I was playing and said, Pete, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but, uh, you know, football is it's not like soccer. It's not the most popular sport in Europe, but there are a bunch of kids playing football, you know, most of them being trained by by Army vets. Long story short, that letter, this is, of course, before email, before faxes, that letter stayed somehow in Pete's file. And when a decision was made uh, in the uh, sort of late 80s, early 90s to launch what was then the World League of American Football, somebody must have found that letter. Tech Schramm, of course, was uh, running that entity at the time for Pete and trying to build it. And they contacted me and said, you know, you've got some sort of connection to Germany. My mother was born and raised there. I speak the language. Uh, but they said, we know you have some sort of connection to Germany. Would you be interested in running the uh, Frankfurt team, uh, the franchise in this new World League of American football? And at the time, uh, my wife, who had grown up overseas, you know, mostly in Europe and South America, she was also a lawyer. We met in law school, but she was willing to do it. We had just one child, Andrew. Uh, he was about a year old, a year and a half old or so. And we decided this would be an interesting adventure uh, to try to take an, a very American product, American football, and uh, you know, working with the NFL and sort of selling it, if you will, to the Germans, packaging it so that it, it, it became you know, a, an integral part of, of sort of the sporting calendar. So that's, that's really how I got started on, uh, on my sports business career, if you will. So then you end up not only being general manager, you end up running the whole league. What was that like? You know, it's, it's, it's fundamentally different running an individual team than, than running the entire league. Uh, so, you know, our, our business model was pretty basic. At the end of the day, we had to sell tickets. We had to sell local sponsorship at the, at the team level. We had to make the team relevant in that particular community. And the Frankfurt franchise, the Frankfurt Galaxy, Jack Elway, John's dad was our first head coach, uh, did remarkably well. Uh, we sold more tickets than anybody. We had the best sort of metrics, if you will. Uh, and this is, again, this is before analytics. This is before computers. This was a really sort of an old school uh, business. Uh, we performed very well. I was then asked by the league to uh, set up a second German franchise, you know, based on the success of Frankfurt uh, and based on the importance of Germany in terms of, you know, Europe and the marketplace. Uh, it was a decision to, to put a second franchise in Dusseldorf, which is uh, a relatively small town, but in the in probably the, the most dense region of Germany, the Ruhr area, uh, the heavy industrial area, kind of like Pittsburgh, if you will. And, and they, they, uh, uh, so the franchise there became the second best performing franchise in our, in our little league. And at that point, uh, Paul Tagliabue had become commissioner. Uh, Neil Ostrin, if you remember Neil as president of the NFL, they both asked me if I would run the, the league. So we packed up and moved to London and spent five years running the league. Running a team is, is a fundamentally different sort of a, in my mind, challenge because it's really about making that brand relevant and important in a, in a, in a relatively tight geographical area, selling tickets, getting people to understand the game and, you know, um, sort of teaching, if you will, uh, the game. And there's lots of 
sort of funny stories about how we tried to, you know, teach in a, in a very sort of fun and uplifting and, and enjoyable way. The one thing I did learn, though, the importance of, of bonding with a community. Uh, you know, soccer is an incredibly powerful sport in Europe. But there were a lot of young people that viewed soccer as their father's sport or their grandfather's sport and didn't really want to get involved with it. If you remember back in the 90s, there was a, an issue with violence at soccer matches, right? right? The, you know, the hooligans, the thugs, et cetera. So, you know, we tried to create an event where a you know, 25-year-old guy could bring his girlfriend. You would never do that at a soccer match back in the 80s or the 90s, but we tried to create a much different, a much more sort of Americanized event. And uh, it, for the Germans, it, it, it worked pretty well and then was able to, you know, again, then run the league for five years. So talk about team construction, how you hired coaches, general managers for the various teams, how you selected players, put rosters together. What we tried to do was was take a, a fairly you know mechanical approach to putting a team together, uh, in the sense that you know we needed head coaches that had credibility. That that was probably the most important factor. We had guys like Jack Elway, successful college coach at uh, you know San Jose State at Stanford. Jack Bicknell, very successful college coach at Boston College. You know with Doug Flutie, but Jack was our head coach down in in Barcelona. So, you know, we needed to get coaches that had credibility because without a credible head coach, there's a lot of players that would question, you know, should I go over to Europe and spend, you know, three or four months, you know, working over there, not making a, a boatload of money like the NFL players would make, but is it worth it? So credibility was far and away the most important factor. And then as we looked at the player pool, you know, we realized that we needed to score points, right? You know, Europeans, even though they, they love a one to nothing soccer match, we wanted to differentiate ourselves and say, hey, listen, this is a sport where you'll, you'll see multiple goals, multiple scoring opportunities throughout, you know, throughout the, uh, the, the course of a game. So we focused on offensive folks, right? We focused on offensive linemen and quarterbacks, because if you can get a quality offensive line and if you can get a couple of quality quarterbacks in each one of the franchises, you've got a much better chance of having a a wide open offensive game. And, and we also did something that uh, I think quite honestly, the NFL is doing this year is we tweaked our rules a little bit and, and said to our referees, let's, let's hold off on, on calling every holding penalty. Let's uh, let's kind of give a slight edge, maybe even a subconscious edge to the offense as we go and, and, and call these games. And it was simply because we wanted to have more of a flowing type game and, and try to sort of mimic in that sense, a little bit of what soccer offered. But for us, the critical piece was building the offensive line and getting quality quarterbacks. And, you know, we, we believe there's enough quality running backs out there at our level, enough quality wide receivers, defensive players across the board, we believe were, were not difficult to get. So for us, the emphasis really was on offensive linemen and quarterbacks. Eventually, the league folded. Uh, the owners I, didn't want to invest anymore and decided to not write checks. Is that kind of, is that, was that the uh, final? Yeah. So the story, the story goes, uh, we spent 10 years there, my wife and I, and we had three of our uh, four kids born over there. So we left in 2000. I'd spent 10 years in Europe and quite honestly needed as a family, we needed to get back to the U.S. and get our kids in the U.S. school system, the U.S. sports system, et cetera. Uh, the NFL owners had been funding the league. Uh, when I left, I want to say that each of the NFL clubs 
contributed about $500,000 to keep the league afloat. We were doing better financially. We had a nice television deal with Fox. They were broadcasting a number of the games. Of course, it was a spring league, uh, but there still was a loss. So uh, the owners were, were funding it. It went on for another seven or eight years. And uh, the, finally, the plug was pulled, I think, in either 2007, 2008. I had lost track of it uh, a little bit. And I, I, I suppose at the end of the day, and I, I can't say this for sure because I wasn't involved then, uh, but I think at the end of the day, there was a you know majority decision or a collective decision by the league not to continue funding uh, and what, what then became NFL Europe. Who knows what would have happened had they continued to fund it. Uh, there were players, you know the story, there were guys like Kurt Warner coming out of the league and Brad Johnson and Jake Delhomme and, uh, and Adam Vinatieri. I mean, these were players that went on to incredibly successful NFL careers, played in Super Bowls. I'm a believer that a guy like Brad Johnson, not necessarily a great NFL quarterback, but of course, you know, he took the Bucks to a Super Bowl. And without that experience he had over in Europe playing for a season or two, probably wouldn't have happened, you know. And Kurt Warner would say the same thing. You know, he had a great experience with the Arena League, uh, but I think coming over and playing for Al Luganville in Amsterdam for just one season, 10 games, you know, but, but you know, under fire, right, with, with the bullets flying, as they say, was a great experience for him. Uh, James Harrison played over there. So there's a boatload of guys that took advantage of, uh, of, of the league. Um, you know, it's questionable whether the league today, if it existed, would, would have offered that, that, that same opportunity. I think it would have. Uh, but, you know, that's all speculation. You come back, you eventually settle in your uh, in Houston, and you take on a, a very political job working for the sports authority. This may have been the most interesting, you know, thing that I've done in my in my career. So, you know, Houston, Texas, uh, fourth largest city in the country, uh, booming metropolis, uh, a, a great city, very diverse. You know, they had infrastructure really coming from the '60s that was built in the '60s for the professional sports team, right? You had the Astrodome uh, built, you know, the eighth wonder in the world. You remember it, you coached down there, uh, you know, with the Steelers, I'm sure, many times. And, you know, that, that even when I was playing in the 80s, the Astrodome had really deteriorated. The county owned the building. They didn't maintain it very well. The Astros weren't happy. The Oilers, of course, weren't happy. Uh, the Texas uh, Rodeo, the big Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, which is a very important tenant, they weren't happy. The Rockets were playing over in the Summit, if you remember that building, the old compact center. But it was a, a building that had outlived its usefulness, didn't have any suites. It was really kind of a mess. So the city of Houston and Harris County, the two big political entities, uh, they uh, joined forces. They created a governmental entity that had taxing authority. And the job of that entity was to rebuild uh, to plan and rebuild and finance and lease uh, new sports facilities. So uh, the result of that really are four uh, really beautiful stadiums. Minute Maid Park, of course, which opened up as Enron Field. Uh, Minute Maid Park, home to the Astros. Uh, Reliant Stadium, which is now called NRG, which is, of course, home to the Texans, new NFL team that came in, uh, and the Livestock Show and Rodeo. Uh, and then the Toyota Center, which is home to the Rockets. Uh, subsequently, the Sports Authority uh, worked to build the Dynamos Stadium, BBVA Compass, uh, which was uh, you know, partially my doing as well because I became president of that club. Uh, but it was fascinating uh, to have a board of 13 politically appointed members. 
six appointed by the city, six appointed by the county, and the chairman was a dual appointee. Uh, but dealing with folks uh, in what was a very you know high-profile civic effort to rebuild the infrastructure, uh, there were many opponents. As you know, lots of people don't want to spend public dollars on on sports venues. So we had to deal with the political issues there. You had to get the, the buildings built on time, on budget, as they say. Uh, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. And I, I think it did teach me a lot about triple net leases, about public money and the best way to sort of structure um, large you know, stadium construction packages, if you will. Uh, and the, the chance to work with the Texans, the Astros, the Rockets, and then ultimately the Dynamo and put all that together was uh, was a great opportunity. I had not had much experience in what I would call real estate opportunities, if you will, in the sports world. So uh, to be able to go through that for five years and, and lead that entity was was a lot of fun. Nothing quite like cutting the ribbon and opening up a building on, uh, you know, for example, when the Texans beat the Cowboys, if you remember that in their opening day, that was very special to see 75,000 people jammed into the stadium having a having a hell of a time. Much different than the old Astrodome experience, I'll tell you that. Your personality, your leadership style, the way you've been able to take your intellect, your wit, your ability to build relationships, it's uncanny. I mean, where do you think that happened? Was it a combination of these different experiences being in Europe, the way you grew up in Cleveland, going to school in West Virginia? Somehow you formed this incredible way to get people to do things in a way that's persuasive and not pushy, where you get people to follow you. It's always dangerous to try to examine your own <laughs> psyche and, and your own uh, you know, makeup or character, if you will. But if I had to go back and point to any sort of one experience uh, in my life that I think really you know, helped me develop my persona, I'll be honest, it would be grade school football. <laughs> I wanted to play quarterback, right? What kid didn't want to play quarterback when you're, you know, nine or 10 or 11 years old? And I grew up in Cleveland and, you know, huge Browns fans. We used to watch Bill Nelson and Gary Collins and Mike Phipps and, uh, you know, all, all the great players, Leroy Kelly, Jim Brown, of course, all, you know, all the great players of that era. And I wanted to play quarterback and I had a grade school football coach. Uh, sort of legendary guy in our neighborhood, you know, said to me, listen, if you want to play quarterback, you have to be a leader. You have to be able to talk to everybody on the team. You have to know their first name and how they're doing. You have to walk into the huddle and sometimes you got to smile, but sometimes you got to be pretty stern. You've got to be pretty tough. And, and that to me was like a, a, a key to the door that opened up and, and gave, uh, you know, an incredibly sort of wide opportunity uh, to become a leader, to become someone that uh, can rally people, that can inspire confidence, that can, you know, crack a joke when necessary, can be self-deprecating if necessary, but can also, you know, be a hard ass, right? Because that's part of what, you know, what you have to do and not just in the sports world, but, you know, in the entire world. So, you know, I, I don't want to make this too melodramatic, but if I had to go back and really sort of analyze myself, I think, it's like that book, you learned everything you need to know in life when you were a kindergartner. You know, I, I think it would be youth football and, and the, the effect it had on me. I had, as a, as a young kid, a speech impediment. I couldn't pronounce my S's and my R's, right? So if I wanted to 
say, hey, Jed, that's a nice wing on your finger. <laughs> that's what, what it sounded like. And if I wanted to say sit down, it didn't sound very appropriate because of my inability to say yes. So part of what my coach taught me was, you know, to be very clear in language. And he helped me get a speech therapist to work all that out because he said, I can't really get you to play quarterback if you're going to, you know, not be understood in the huddle, right? I really think a lot of that goes back to being a 10, 11, 12-year-old uh, in suburban Cleveland with uh, a great football coach for my little, you know, my little grade school team. You leave this job and, and you go to one of your roots. So you're in Germany, you like soccer. Now all of a sudden you got an you got a team that's going to move from San Jose and you decide you're going to take it over. How did that this is really what happened. So I went back to the sports authority. We talked about it, right? Politically appointed board. Uh, they three beautiful new stadiums built. And I went to the board and I said, listen, um, you know, we've done a marvelous job for the city of Houston and Harris County. Football's taken care of the rodeo, basketball, baseball. They're all fine. They got brand new buildings. They're going to be happy for the next 30, 40 years. I said, there's one sport that we're missing in the fourth largest city in the country. And that's professional soccer. We don't have a team in the highest level of American professional soccer, of course, MLS. So my board, in a sense, deputized me to go out and find an MLS franchise. There were two franchises at the time. This was about 2004, 2005. You know, the league had just started to turn the corner. If you remember, you know, for the first 10, 15 years, MLS was on kind of shaky ground. It wasn't clear that it was going to make it. Right. So uh, I talked to uh, the Kansas City team, the Kansas City Wiz, if you remember, uh, mm -hmm. owned by the Hunt family, Hunt family, you know, Lamar, right, and Clark and everybody. And then the other franchise was out in San Jose, the San Jose Clash. Then they renamed themselves San Jose Earthquake. Both were struggling. San Jose was playing at the old San Jose State Spartan Stadium. They couldn't get any public money for a new building. Uh, it wasn't working very well. Phil Anschutz had to come in and basically take over that franchise. Uh, for the league's sake, right, because they didn't want it to fail. And then Kansas City was interesting. You know, Clark mentioned to me that, you know, he said, Oliver, we own the Dallas MLS team, which, of course, is up in Frisco, Texas. And uh, even though we think Houston's an awesome market, we're not sure we should really own two Texas teams. That wouldn't sort of be appropriate in, in a professional sports league because Houston and Dallas, as you know, are, are pretty strong rivals. Sure. So long story short, we were able to convince – uh, Phil Anschutz to move his, his San Jose franchise from San Jose down to Houston. And uh, Phil then asked me to run the team, not because of any great soccer knowledge I had, but primarily basically because he believed I could help find a, a franchise a stadium to you know build a downtown stadium for the franchise, which of course is, is critical. I became president of the, uh, of the Dynamo. We won two MLS Cups. Had a great franchise with uh, Dominic Kinnears, our head coach, guys like Brian Ching. So did you have to hire the head coach? Uh, no, the head coach came down from, from San Jose, uh, okay. and we kept him. I extended his contract. He had done a, a very good job for that team. Uh, we had played in a bunch of internet, international matches, the CONCACAF Champions League and all that. You know, I, I found that the dealing with coaches, dealing with players, really regardless of the sport, dealing with fans, the media, is, is really very similar. We used to say, you know, it doesn't really matter what size or shape the ball is. You know, professional athletes, coaches, sports fans, you know, your broadcast partners, they're, they're really, in a sense, the same. So it was relatively easy, I think, to move between a sport like football that I knew pretty well uh, and then into something like soccer that I didn't know all that well. But 
I found that the guys were pretty much just like athletes all across the board. Then your alma mater calls. How does that decision get made? Well, I was running the Dynamo. Uh, I was asked by uh, the then governor of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, uh, now the senior senator for the state. I was asked by Joe to uh, join the West Virginia Board of Governors. It's the Board of Trustees for the university. And um, I accepted that. I I care about higher ed and certainly care about my alma mater. And I I joined the board. That was just at a time uh, that, you know, this whole college realignment, college, you know, the the conference realignment was going on uh, 2008, 2009, 2010. You know, you had Nebraska uh, leaving, you know, their conference. You had Missouri leaving, Texas A&M, you know, there's a lot of movement. Uh, of course. And uh, we hired a president, Jim Clements, who's now at Clemson University. We hired Jim as uh, the president of West Virginia. And after Jim got on board for really just a couple of couple of months, he called me up and said, hey, he said, I'm very worried about West Virginia University athletics. We're in the Big East, of course, but the Big East had lost uh, Miami, Boston College, had lost Virginia Tech earlier in the decade. And you know, there were rumors that other schools were planning on leaving. Of course, ultimately, Pitt and Syracuse both left to join the ACC. So Jim asked me, he said, this is going to be a very challenging time. You know, would you be willing to come and be my athletic director? And uh, I said, yes, I care about WVU. I didn't want to see us kind of fall in that never-never land of not being in one of the what became the you know Power Five conferences. And I've, I've always had an interest in college athletics, like most folks that, you know, played college ball. And uh, I thought this would be a neat opportunity to not just help the university, but to create a, you know, sort of a platform for a, the long-term success of Mountaineer athletics. Without being in a major conference, it's virtually impossible, I think, to have a platform where the university's athletic program can be successful. Notre Dame has done it. Uh, but that's really about it, you know, and they, you know, I think have had to make concessions along the way. Certainly this year, you know, a concession of joining you know, the ACC for football opponents. So uh, I, ma- I made the decision to my wife and I move up to Morgantown. We brought uh, two of our kids graduated from Morgantown High and uh, did that for you know, four and a half, five years and really enjoyed it. It was a, it was a lot of fun. College athletics is an incredibly important institution. Uh, in, in, in this country. But of course, as, as you very well know, as everybody knows, there's, there's a boatload of challenges for college sports. And uh, being able to sort of negotiate through all that and, and help the university get into a new conference, build a new baseball stadium using a, a TIF, right, which is what we use to build the Dynamo Stadium in Houston, uh, you know, getting beer sold in the stadium, for example. That, that seems like a minor thing, but it's something that uh, the 60,000 Mountaineer fans that packed the building I think really appreciate every year and it created the, some additional revenue for the university. So that was a, it was a very enjoyable, fun time. I, I liked it. Did you have to hire a head football coach during that time? Uh, we did. Uh, we hired Dana Holgerson, uh, who uh, we, I thought in, uh, in many folks thought, uh, you know, would help us sort of navigate the new big 12, which is a wide open, you know, yes. passing league. Uh, obviously, you know, if you look back you know, at what uh, guys like Art Bryles, you know, did at Baylor and, and Mike Leach at Texas Tech, you know, it was probably the most wide open of the major conferences. And as we looked at, you know, what the Big 12 was and what it would take to be competitive in that league, knowing that it was a big step up, you know, from playing, you know, a, a typical West Virginia schedule that had 
sort of Big East teams, but also, you know, local schools like Richmond or others moving that that level up, you know, to the Big 12, taking on Oklahoma and Texas and, and Kansas State and some of the others, you know, all of whom were playing pretty wide open football. We thought it made sense to get a guy like uh, Dana with a sort of the air raid touch, if you will. Opportunity comes now. The NCAA is struggling. Mark Emmert is on thin ice and you end up, you know, taking a, a significant role with them. Talk a little bit about what that was like and how that's impacted and the things you did to impact the NCAA during your tenure there. You know, college athletics is what, what most people would call, what most lawyers at least would call a very highly regulated industry. Uh, it's, uh, you know, the NCAA rule book is, is pretty thick and there are lots of rules, you know, whether, I mean, there are obviously rules about scholarship numbers and those sorts of things, but lots of rules about, you know, personal behavior and what kids can do and what boosters can, cannot do, et cetera. And I had always been sort of interested in, in the regulatory framework of intercollegiate athletics. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's sort of lodged somewhere between professional sport and sort of truly amateur sport. Uh, the, the amount of money that flows into college athletics is enormous. And we're really the only country in the world that does college athletics like we do. You know, people over in Europe don't, you know, fill the stadium up to watch amateurs play. <laughs> you know, they, they might have the Oxford-Cambridge, you know, boat race on the Thames, but that's really about it. So it's, it's, it's something very unique. There's no other model like it, you know, around the world. And I was uh, quite honestly interested in the, in the regulatory framework and and how things get done at the NCAA was really a case of wanting to better learn how the sausage gets made, if you will, at the NCAA headquarters. Um, So I spent a good bit of time there overseeing all the regulatory space for for Mark and and his team. And that included really three sort of distinct units, the Eligibility Center, which is the group that clears every high school kid who wants to play college sports. Uh, then there's uh, the enforcement arm, you know, enough said, that's a group that goes out and tries to sniff out wrongdoing, you know, by coaches or boosters or student athletes or whatever. And then, of course, there's an, an entity called Academic and Membership Affairs, which basically acts as the group that gives waivers to kids, that interprets all the bylaws that might uh, need to be there and focuses on the academic progress. So, uh, it's clearly bureaucratic. There's no question about it. But like most bureaucracies, you've got to figure out how to sort of move, you know, move them forward. And that was a fascinating uh, experiment uh, for me to see how the sausage really gets made and, and how the NCAA operates. And sort of by, I think, design, you know, it's designed in a sense to take all the heat off the uh, off the individual universities, the, the individual conferences Everybody can kind of point to the NCAA, you know, national entity as sort of the bad guy uh, in, in things that, you know, that, that don't go wrong or, you know, changes that don't get made. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Uh, I also enjoyed, quite honestly, being in Indianapolis. Indianapolis. My wife and I, you know, were able to, to be close to, to Andrew. He was playing, of course, for the Colts and, you know, not having to drive seven hours to a Sunday home game, uh, being able to literally walk, uh, you know, 15 minutes down the street to the stadium was was a real pleasure and being around him, you know, other than just on game day uh, was nice as well. Uh, I would have uh, gladly, quite honestly, stayed there much longer because I I really enjoyed sort of better understanding how the infrastructure works at the NCAA and also figuring out where improvements could be made 
you know, be it, you know, on, on how enforcement uh, investigated cases or, you know, things that the eligibility center may, may have done. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways to, to sort of skin the cat in terms of college athletics. The NCAA has chosen its, its path, uh, but uh, there, are, there are a number of things that can continue to be modified to make it a more efficient entity and, you know, to better sort of represent the 500,000 student athletes that take part in sports every year at the college level. There's several controversial issues. The transfer portal and what may happen with that in terms of unique instant uh, eligibility. The balance of power over the last 10 years has shifted slowly uh, in favor of the student athlete, right? I think it used to be the coach, you know, the athletic director, the institution had, you know, the more of the power and that slowly shifted. So I love the fact that, uh, you know, a graduate transfer can leave without any qualms and go spend another year or two at a different school, you know, that, that offers a graduate program that that student athlete, you know, would like. I think it's reasonable to say that a student athlete uh, should have one free undergraduate transfer without any delay. Uh, you know, you don't always make the right decision as a 17 or 18 year old in terms of where you want to go to college. And then factors can happen like you're the coach that you went to school because you love that coach. He gets fired or he moves on to a better job. And, you know, you can't really anticipate those things. So, you know, as the, as the power balance shifts and more power is in the hands of the student athlete, uh, I think that's a good thing, quite honestly. Uh, and some kids will take advantage of it, but that's fine, right? What, what ultimately does the NCAA want? They want the kid to get a degree uh, in a meaningful major, right, that can help that young man or young woman go on and become successful in life and enjoy the four, three, five, whatever number of years they have as an athlete. That's really the bottom line of what, you know, what the NCAA wants for, for all these kids. And you can get that in, in sort of different ways. So for me, a kid to have the one, you know, quote unquote, free transfer in the portal, I think is fine because it's giving that kid sort of more agency over, you know, his or her life. Name, image, and likeness. That's going to be something that uh, decisions are going to have to be made on. It looks like states, based on what Congress is doing, may fall uh, into, rather than having a universal plan, individual. How do you see that? How do you see this thing playing out? You know, name image likeness is really, a, a, I think, the most fundamental shift in college athletics over the last 50, 60 years. You know, uh, it's going to allow a student athlete to monetize his or her name, image, and likeness, right? With endorsements and social media or autograph sessions or going to a fifth grade birthday party and playing basketball with the kids because you're the star basketball player at the local school. So kids are able to, you know, to monetize themselves, earn money off that name, image, likeness. That's going to bring a whole new dynamic, you know, into that relationship that the university has with, with the student athlete. You know, it'll be interesting. Uh, the Florida law uh, will go into effect July 1st of 2021. I don't see anything stopping that from happening. The NCAA could file, you know, an injunction and try to get some relief, but I just don't see that, that happening. As you know, there have been a couple of... Uh, Federal bills filed most recently, Anthony Gonzalez, Ohio State, uh, former Ohio State Buckeye, former Colt, former St. Ignatius Wildcat, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Anthony, you know, uh, filed a bill. But it's not clear to me that there'll be any federal action at the congressional level, given that we've got an election coming up. People are worried about a lot of other things, uh, more so than, you know, a national NIL 
you know, federal bill. My sense is that the NCAA's package will be passed by the Division One Council. Uh, it's already been uh, vetted pretty closely at the Division Two, Division Three level, uh, but D1 is where most of the action is going to be. That council will debate later this month, uh, and I think it'll be promulgated uh, in January at the NCAA convention. And I think it'll, there'll be a national NIL policy that's been promulgated by the, uh, the NCAA. It'll be very similar to the Florida law, right? Uh, you'll be allowed to go out and do all these things to monetize your, your name, your image, your likeness. The NCAA law most likely will allow agents or brand advisors to help uh, a kid to work with a student athlete, to help negotiate a contract or advise on a contract for a, his or her name, image, likeness. It's going to be a big shift. And coaches, administrators all have to sort of wrap their arms around what this means uh, because it's uh, really sort of a, I talked earlier about a door opening up, offering a wide you know, spectrum of possibilities. The same could be said for, for name, image, and likeness. One of the interesting things, Jed, is going to be that in the Division One at the D1 level, uh, a student will more than likely be prohibited from using the school's institutional marks, the logos, uh, when he or she does an endorsement. So, uh, you know, very similar to what uh, an NFL player has to do. He might, uh, you know, if he's working for a, a company that's not a sponsor of the Indianapolis Colts, he can wear a blue and white shirt uh, as he does his endorsement, but, you know, can't mention the Indianapolis Colts or have a, a Colts logo or any of the marks that the Colts own. There's a lot of education that has to happen Again, I think it's the biggest shift in college athletics over the last 50, 60 years. And, you know, it's, it's going to be launched in, in the summer of 2021. One last thought, you know, because of this pandemic, a lot of the leaders in college athletics, certainly at the campus and at the conference level, they understand NIL, but they've kind of pushed it off in the back burner because of the immediacy of the COVID crisis, right? You know, can we play games this Saturday? Can we have uh, fans in the stands this Saturday? Oh my gosh, we're going to lose thirty or forty million dollars because we can't sell tickets for the season. Where am I going to plug? Where, where am I going to find that money to plug the hole in the budget? So even though this is a hugely fundamental and seismic shift, NIL, a lot of folks haven't really focused on it all that much, and that's that could become problematic as we roll into February, March, and April, uh, because you know what, the student athletes are very aware of this. And I, you know, certainly if I was uh, back in school or if my, my, my three, three of the four kids who played college sports, if they were back in school, I think they'd all find this to be an interesting opportunity to, to go out and, uh, you know, make a little side money. So it's, it's going to be a fascinating rollout come, uh, you know, come uh, the summer of 2021. You leave this to join with Vince and then take a vision of his that didn't work the first time to build the XFL and you went about doing it and it was having tremendous success in the pandemic hit. Talk about what you did on that, on the football side in terms of how you went about your concept of changing rules, how you brought coaches in and players and the resources you had to use. I mean, you talk about, you used all the things you've talked about, your skills in terms of navigating all these different environments and being able to to make it work. So I'm anxious to hear that. And obviously, we know each other based on our relationship here, but I want our viewers to hear what that was like 
putting that entity together? Well, first of all, it was a, a, a tremendous opportunity. It's not often that, you know, a well-capitalized spring league comes around. And, you know, I'd been involved, of course, with, with the NFL Europe for 10 years and had experience sort of building up uh, the football side and the business side. And, you know, many of the lessons I learned doing that, you know, applied, I think, equally to, you know, launching the XFL. Uh, but but we believe that we needed a couple of things. We needed to have a game that had enough innovation that it would uh, you know it would be attractive to diehard, passionate football fans, but wasn't you know innovation that was gimmicky or quirky or, or odd. So everything we did, for example, the new kickoff or the twenty five second clock or miking up you know the referees as they you know consulted with each other or the conversations that a a coach was having on the sideline with a quarterback because everybody was mic'd up. We believe all of those had a solid underlying rationale, right? Uh, take the 25 second clock. You know, we, we looked at gosh, hundreds of national football league games and quickly realized that, you know, the average snap is, is, is made about 23 seconds in. So why not sort of institutionalize that as opposed to allowing a 40-second clock, where very often 12, 13, 14 seconds is just wasted. So we went about it, we think, in a very sort of methodical and, and, and rigorously analytical uh, way and came up with, uh, with our sort of package of innovations. Uh, it wasn't just us internally, uh, although I had some great people like Sham, Sam Schwartzstein, who was our director of football ops, who had played at Stanford uh, with my son. He was a center. Uh, and he was really uh, magical in terms of getting all this data and crunching it and coming up with good solutions. But we ran those, you know, ideas past uh, very credible people like Jim Caldwell and John Fox and Doug Flutie and, and other former coaches and players. Jim Harbaugh was a part of uh, our, our little group. We had tech guys. We had television production guys come in and, and help us sort of, you know, create this game. And it's, it's asking people for their advice and being sort of humble enough to accept their advice because, you know, Jim Caldwell and John Fox, as successful as they've been, they know a lot more uh, about football than, than I, you know, ever would. So we wanted to have that, that innovative game uh, that we could use as a hook to bring, you know, viewers in. And the second thing that we desperately needed, uh, quite honestly, was credibility, right? Credibility at the head coach level because just as we had in NFL Europe, you wanted – guys that players recognized and said, oh, gosh, I'd be willing to play for him. Uh, again, we weren't paying, you know, massive salaries to the majority of our players. So to get a guy like, you know, Bob Stoops up in, uh, in, in Dallas, you know, to come out of retirement basically and, and join us, uh, to get Mark Trestman, you know, a guy that you know very well down in, in Tampa, successful. I mean, all these guys had incredible resumes, former NFL head coaches. We got a couple of guys like Pep Hamilton on their way up. Uh, you know, Pep had been uh, offensive coordinator for four or five uh, college and NFL teams. He's now quarterbacks coach out of San Diego, doing a great job with Justin Herbert, who's you know playing as well as any rookie I've, I've I've seen. But getting the credibility at you know the head coach level, they in turn went out to find you know top-notch assistant coaches and willing to take a chance on a couple of guys uh, that uh, you know many folks really didn't know. I'll bring up the name Jonathan Hayes former Chiefs, uh, Steelers tight end, spent 15, 16 years on Marvin Lewis's staff with the Bengals. Jonathan was our head coach 
in St. Louis did a did an excellent job. Was leading you know the Eastern Division when the COVID hit and we had to shut down. But you know I, I foresee him as being a, a a head coach at some level, whether it's college or or pro down the road, because he's a super talented guy. So it was really about innovation, and then it was about credibility. And I think with those two things, a spring league can succeed. We had a pretty good thing going. You know, ESPN, ABC, Fox. Uh, they were happy with the TV ratings. I think aside from New York, where attendance wasn't very strong, we had pretty solid attendance across the board. St. Louis was literally having to open up the upper deck of their building to sell tickets. Uh, did well in, in D.C. as well, in the other markets. Uh, but, you know, COVID hit uh, the same time as it hit the NBA and the NHL and the NCAA basketball tournament. And, you know, we weren't able to continue to, to play. Uh, but it doesn't diminish any belief that I would have. In fact, it strengthens that belief that a, a spring league properly constructed with the right capital, because you do need a couple of years of, of, uh, of runway to build the league and develop uh, your own brand, I think can work. You know, football, we all know this, football is an incredibly powerful and attractive television sport. People can't get enough NFL and college ball. So the springtime that, you know, post Super Bowl, February, March, April, I think is really a, a very sweet spot for, you know, for a future spring league. And I you know, don't know the plans of the current XFL ownership group, uh, but I think they would have an opportunity if they kind of followed the, the sort of the path that we created over the last couple of years. How many coaches would you say you interviewed for the head coaching roles? You know, ultimately we needed to get eight, right? But uh, I probably spoke with 35, 40 coaches. Uh, you know, probably half of those guys were former NFL head coaches. Uh, some were interested. Uh, some weren't, quite honestly. Uh, others thought they might be able to jump back in, and, and some did. And then, you know, there, there, was one, there was one former NFL head coach uh, that I, I really wanted to, to bring on board. Uh, he uh, said no, ended up taking an assistant job with an NFL team, but then that staff got fired. So, you know, I mean, the coaching profession, it's so hard to predict what's going to happen. But I probably ended up interviewing, you know, 35, 40 guys for the, for the eight positions that we had. How about the rosters in terms of how you put teams together, what your involvement was in terms of, you know, finding quarterbacks? Because when you and I first talked, you, you mentioned – Coach, head coach credibility, you then needed to find that quarterback credibility like you talked about in Europe. So talk about the roster construction on how you were able to do that for the teams you had. Very much like, like uh, you know, the old World League NFL Europe, we, we wanted to have an offensive style of football. You know, for us, the perfect game was a 38 to 35, you know, thriller. And we, were, we got to that level, you know, the last, uh, last couple of weeks of the, of the season. Uh, but again, and football hasn't changed all that much since, you know, the early 90s. It's all about your offensive line, uh, your quarterback, and your scheme. You know, so we really focused on quarterbacks like uh, Philip Walker, P.J. Walker, the kid out of Temple uh, that had been on the Colts roster. Andrew, in fact, tipped me off to his talent level. He said, Dad, this would be a perfect player for the XFL. And, of course, we married him with June Jones down, you know, in Houston. And we wanted to make sure that each one of our head coaches – had enough flexibility to look around the league, to look at practice squad rosters, look at guys that have just recently been cut, and, and to try to find a guy that would fit that style of, of play. 
you know, the way to build you know, a roster is really to build your, your offensive line and, and find that right quarterback. Again, I don't want to dismiss the value of running backs or wideouts, but you know, there's a, there's a, we think a bunch of those that could, could play at the level that we wanted, you know, we wanted our, our play to be at. So it was really a focus on the offensive linemen. We went out and sort of talked to the agents until we were blue in the face and had to, in some cases, offer a little bit more money. We tried to get guys that may not have fit the size, sort of, you know, the ramifications, if you will, or the size parameters to be an NFL offensive lineman. A lot of guys from smaller schools that may have been 20, 30 pounds too light uh, that we were able to bring in and they could play in a little bit more of a wide open system. So it's knowing, I think, what you want to do uh, in, in terms of offensive play. And we allowed the head coaches, again, to have that flexibility. Uh, but, you know, we targeted very clear, clearly offensive linemen and, and quarterbacks. You know, not much different than what we did back in the NFL Europe days. The whole piece in terms of looking at the organization that you built and how they competed. I mean, what do you feel is the legacy of what you accomplished with that? We wanted to be able to give the head coach, you know, enough flexibility to use the system that, that, you know, he wanted to, to, to put in, you know, offensively, defensively, special teams, you know, but we also kept during the, the run up to the, to the first week, we kept a real close eye on, on our teams and who was struggling. In fact, we brought all, eight of our franchises into Houston for about a four week training camp. And they, you know, they were practicing at Rice at U of H at Houston Baptist, Texas Southern, some of the high school facilities, as you know, are awesome down there. And we had, uh, you know, our scouts, we had our football personnel literally review every day, the strengths and the weaknesses of, of uh, each one of the teams, because we wanted to intervene if we you know, thought we needed to. That's important when you're starting a brand new league. You know, I really didn't care which team won the championship. I didn't care which team you know, won game one or game two or game three. What I cared about was the quality of play and, you know, sort of the, the competitiveness of, of, of each team. And, you know, some teams started out a little bit slower and then picked up steam. Others, others started off very strongly and kind of faded, although, you know, after a five-week season, we hardly had enough of a sample size to make you know, judgments. But I think the legacy was – that it's critical to have all franchises in a startup league, you know, be starting at a level where everybody is competitive. You know, we didn't want to go in and have some team lose their first three games, you know, get blown out, you know, 35 to seven, you know, three times in a row. And I, and I think that's, you know, sort of an indication that you can structure and build a league, maintain competitiveness. So it's attractive to the fan, but also have integrity, right? Because that's critical in today's, world not just because of gambling but you know because of of the importance of of the fan looking at a league saying that's real football i'm going to invest my time my energy my money and watch it either on tv or live or you know buying some merch i mean that integrity is critical so i think you can marry those factors up i would say that's probably the legacy that we were able to leave with uh, with our, with the xfl your football organization what were the uh, the verticals how did you have that structure at the XFL, we had uh, at the league level, we had, you know, football ops group, Doug Whaley, former Bills general manager, uh, was my senior VP of, of football. He worked primarily with the coaches and, and conducted, you know, virtually all the football meetings we had. Uh, I mentioned Sam Schwartzstein earlier, former player at Stanford. Sam was our director of football ops, and he took a deep dive into all of our innovations, into the rules of the game, 
into you know how we wanted to work with our referees. Dean Blandino was our advisor for our officials, did a marvelous job. You know, we 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 quite honestly wanted to do, and I think we're successful in doing very much what the NFL is doing in this COVID year, which is you know increasing their scoring, uh, fewer penalties, right. uh, games. Uh, I think seem to be a little bit more wide open, right? Just from my observation of watching. You know, watching the NFL on Sundays and Mondays, and even on a Tuesday occasion. Right. Uh, so, uh, really, it was a it was a pretty narrow organization. We had a, a number of scouts that worked yeah, with us. Well. Where was personnel housed? Personnel was housed with us. Our point person on the personnel side was a young man named Eric Galco, a lawyer with Optimum Scouting. We basically, you know, hired his firm. He had three or four scouts. Hired his firm to work with us to identify those kind of players that we needed. Uh, you know, everybody knows who a first or a second or a third rounder is, but we needed to look at guys who were, you know, six, seventh rounders and undrafted free agents, maybe guys from smaller schools that had gotten overlooked. So, you know, we had a you know, scouting group that reported up into Doug, uh, but we also had our, our head coaches, you know, actively involved with scouting in order to get into our draft pool. And keep in mind, we weren't unionized, so we had no union to deal with in order to get into the draft pool. Uh, you had to, you know, pass a background check, and that all needed to happen before a, a, you know, a player was was admitted into our draft pool. And then our coaches, who could recommend guys for draft pool, then they knew who was able to be drafted. So uh, the coaches were actively involved, but Eric Galco and his team, and Doug, of course, did I think a very good job of finding guys who who uh, could play the type of game that we wanted to play. So player development, mental mental health, any of those things. Were they housed under you? Were that were they the player development, health and safety with our you know athletic trainer? Uh, we we worked with uh, one of the best in, in the you know in the country, former uh, head athletic trainer for the 49ers, former head athletic trainer at, at, at Clemson. Uh, did a you know uh, Jeff Ferguson did a great job for us. But you know here's the thing: we had lots of plans for you know, player development and sort of mental health issues, but. You know, we were stopped the five weeks into the season. Right, 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 right. And most of those were plans that we had planned on sort of implementing you know, in, in our first off season as we led up into year two. So at the end of the day, we were able to play football. I think play pretty good football. All right, for the first five weeks, I think we were on a nice trajectory. But a lot of the plans that we had developed were were pretty much you know put on the shelf because of the COVID. From my perspective, the opportunity to have gotten to know you for the last 15 years has been a lot of fun. I mean, obviously, as a Steeler coach, we competed against you guys. We experienced the Astrodome. We used to walk the field with the linebackers to see where the holes were in the scene <laughs> so we'd know where, where, there are, where there are dips and so forth. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, what you've been able to achieve personally and what you and your wife have done with the development of your children has been phenomenal. I'm proud to know you and uh, thank you for being part of our, uh, our, our guest community. I appreciate it very much. It's been a pleasure to know you over the, uh, the years and I'm sure our relationship will continue moving forward and uh, stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah, you do the same and, and no broken legs on the ski, on the ski. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try to avoid those. I'm a little bit too old to, to have that kind of an issue, you know, cramp my style but I thanks for you. having me and i appreciate it very much all the best thanks you too oliver bye-bye